The Bible reading this morning is Romans 8, 12 to 17. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Two Sundays ago, as I was um, heading out of the church parking lot, I'd actually gone to lunch with my family after church and came back here to pick up my truck. And I was heading out, there were two ladies from our church that were out in the parking lot helping another woman with her car, and it was obvious that the woman was having some car problems. And so I stopped to help out, and that ended up being a more complicated repair than I had expected, and was with the woman for probably an hour and a half or so afterwards trying to get her car repaired, which we eventually did. But in the process, we had lots of time to talk, uh, lots of conversation. And eventually in the conversation, our conversation turned to spiritual things, and we began talking about some of those things. And she shared with me that, that she and her husband were involved in, as a matter of fact, their full-time business was something related to what she described as spiritual healing and wellness, that that was what they trained people in, various processes for that. And so I was curious and asked her if she could explain more of what they did, and she told me that one of the things that they primarily practice was something called Reiki. Now, I didn't know about it. I went and asked my wife, and she understood what it was. But the woman explained to me that it's some Japanese healing process uh, belief that um, the word Rai means higher power or God, and Ki means life force. And so their belief is that in some ways, by placing hands on people certain ways or over people, um, by using drums and somehow what they call attuning people to that rhythm, um, or even by prayer that somehow um, they manipulate or move this life force within people. And they, she explained to me that if the life force is high, then people are healthier and happier. If the life force is low, then they are unhappy and unhealthy. But when she mentioned prayer, that piqued my interest and seemed like an opportunity to talk about more. And so I asked her, well, who is it you pray to when you pray? And she stopped for a minute and thought about it, and, and I could tell that wasn't a question she was expecting. And she eventually said, well, I guess I pray to that higher power, to a higher power. And, and I said, to God. I pray to God. And, and I asked her if she could explain to me a little who that God was, who she believed that God to be. And again, she was very kind and willing to enter into the conversation with me and, um, and answer my questions, and she, she did stumble there. She had a hard time explaining to me who that higher power was. And as we talked a little more, one of the things I said to her, I said, you know, um, I, with you, I do believe that God is all-powerful. 
And I really do believe that God is the source of life. On those things, we're together. Uh, We actually share that. I said, I think where we part ways, I think where our beliefs start to differ, is that if, if I understand you right, the practice of this and what you're teaching people really has little to do with knowing that God. Matter of fact, one of the things told me was that to practice this Reiki, you don't have to believe in God at all. It's just not necessary. And I said, well, that's where we part ways because even though I believe God is all-powerful and God is the source of life, I do believe that the God of Scripture, the God I believe in, is a very personal God. He's a very relational God. He's a God that my Bible describes as one who who watches over us, who doesn't watch over us to catch us in something. He watches over us with great care and with great concern. So the Bible teaches, my Bible teaches that that God is one who loves us like a father loves his children. In fact, he even says that he is gentle and concerned about us the way a mother cares for his children. He's one who guides us, who challenges us so that we would grow like a parent would do. I said, and to me, that is, that is a pretty big difference from what you're describing and what I believe, because I really do think that relationship with God is central and core to what I understand it means to worship and serve this God. And again, we had a wonderful conversation about it. But as I left that conversation, working on a car, and uh, was thinking about it later when I got home, I thought, you know, it's not that, what she was describing to you is not that different than what I often hear from people. Maybe sometimes in what we'll describe as health and wealth gospel is kind of the belief that, um, again, not that people who believe that don't believe they're having a relationship with God, a personal relationship with God, but, but many times it sounds like the, the main goal is to somehow tap into a power source, that that's really what we're looking for. We need to tap into that power source because if we can, health and wellness Health and happiness will come our way. And again, when I go to Scripture, what I find is life with God is about something so much more than that. God is absolutely a source of power. But our God's a very personal God. God uses terms to describe himself that are very relational. I think he wants us to understand that at the very center, at the heart, at the core of our life with God is a relationship. Now, in the passage we're looking at today, Paul describes a God who I think is much more than just a power source, much more than that. In Romans, through the book of Romans up into this passage, he's been describing several things about our relationship with God. And one of the things he says that all of us at one time were sinners. All of us were sinners who were bound to sin, who were on a path that led to death. And not just physical death, but spiritual death, eternal death. That was every single person who he is writing to, including us. But he says, because of Christ, our spirits have been made alive. That true life has entered us through God because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And he says that every single believer, this isn't some next step or some special thing that happens to us if we do the right things, but every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ is then indwelt by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of God. That God is within us. He is actually part of us. And then this chapter 8 begins by telling us because of that, there is no threat of condemnation for those who know Christ. We stand before Christ without fear that that day would come when we stand in judgment before him. We will not be condemned. 
we don't have to live in fear of that because of what Christ has done for us. In chapter 8, verses 10 through 11, say this, But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And that righteousness he's talking about is not ours. It's the righteous standing we have before God because of what Christ has done for us and what he's done in us. We stand before him righteous. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Now, you know, we, we go through death. We, these physical, fleshly bodies die. But he says to us that, but now life is in you. Your, your eternal life, if you know Christ, has already begun, right? Your bodies can die, but you can't. Uh, that, that you will go on and continue to live. As a matter of fact, we will live bodily, Scripture tells us. These fleshly bodies we have now die, but we receive resurrection bodies that we will continue to live. Life will go on because the Holy Spirit's in us. You can't die. Um, life will always be a part of who we are. He indwells us. So we're eternally alive in the Spirit, he tells us. And again, he talks about this life as being much more, this life with him as being something much more than just tapping into energy or you've been given the secret password to get into some kind of blessing vault or, again, you just you gain from it, that that's all you get. You receive something. He, he goes on in chapter 8, verses 12, 13, Talk about the fact that we actually have an obligation that's part of this relationship we've entered into. That we're debtors would be another way of translating that word. We're indebted in some way because of this relationship that we are now in. Now, most of us don't like words like obligated and debt, right? That's not a happy kind of relationship. When we want to talk about our relationship with God, I want to think, uh, you know, the words we'll be getting to in a moment. Those are the words I want to think about. I don't want to think about I'm obligated, I'm a debtor, I'm indebted to him. But that's where Paul starts. He starts in talking about the relationship in this way, we're obligated. He says you're no longer obligated to the flesh. And, the, and that term flesh, Paul uses in different ways, sometimes to literally talk about these physical bodies. But most of the time, especially in Romans when he's talking about it, he's talking about something more than that. When he talks about the flesh, he is talking about this kind of, what we often refer to as the world. A, a way of thinking, a way of living, a way of being that is separate from God, that actually Scripture says is hostile towards God and in rebellion against God. It's the flesh. It's that whole kind of system of being that's against God and apart from God. And he says to us, you know, that, um, that we are people who, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. We're no longer bound to that. That is not a way of life that any longer we have to live in. But he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. That we now have the Holy Spirit within, him, within us, and so we are now bound to a different way of life. We are now called to a way of life that is the Spirit way of life. That is who we are, that's who we're about. Now, this is a passage that people struggle with often. They struggle with, is he saying in this that if you don't do the right things, if you don't live this spirit way of life, then you will eternally die, that you will lose your salvation? 
Uh, how you will answer that question probably depends upon where you fa fall in that Arminian-Calvinist theological divide. Personally, I think that uh, part of what he's saying here is, if you look through the whole passage in Romans chapter 8, it is about assurance, it's about our security in Christ. Again and again, that is the theme. So I don't think that's what he's saying here, is that somehow you're going to lose your salvation if you don't do the right things. I think instead what he's probably saying here is that there are some among you who maybe claim Christ, but their life doesn't reveal it. Matter of fact, their life seems to reveal the Spirit is not with them, that that says something other than what they are proclaiming. Because if you know Christ, the Spirit is in you. And if the Spirit is in you, you know Christ. If there is evidence of that, then you are a follower of Christ. Now, one of the things Paul says is that you're called to this new way of life, but he also, you know how it is, we, all of us when we came to Christ didn't suddenly sin all went away, right? Temptation didn't just suddenly end. Matter of fact, we still feel drawn to it. We still live in fleshly fallen bodies, we still live in a world where there is sin, and we still feel kind of drawn to it. So you say, well, what changed then? Say, I'm no longer obligated to that, but to this, what changed? Well, what changed is now the possibility. What changed is now I'm not alone in this battle. What changed is now I no longer have to go back to the slavery of sin. I am no longer obligated to it. I'm no longer bound to it. But you know how it is. It's like a slave who's been set free and you're familiar with a certain way of life. You can want to go back. You can want to say, I know that way of life. It's a comfortable way of life. It may have been horrible and I may have wanted out of it when I'm in it, but I don't know anything else. When I was trained as a counselor, one of the things I had to study, and I know just about enough about it to be dangerous, was a family systems theory, which is a form of psychotherapy that has to do with um, seeing people as a part of a family unit and understanding their struggles and behavior as a part of a whole family, more than as individuals. And one of the things I do remember they taught us was that in a family, a lot of times what happens is even if that family, everybody in it would say, we hate kind of the family way of relating. We hate it. We find it painful. We find it destructive. Even if everyone in the family would say it, what they found is if one person begins to step away from it and begin relating in different ways that are healthier ways, even though the rest of the family would say, this is ugly and we don't like it, they will be angry at the one who pulls away. They will even try and pull them back in. They will try and put pressure on them, force them back into the old system. Why? Because we know this system. We all know our roles in it. We're, we hate it, but we're kind of comfortable with it too. It's the known, and we're comfortable with the known. Paul says you're no longer obligated to that flesh way of life. You're no longer bound to it. You've been set free. You've been set free by the Spirit. Live that new life. Don't go back to the old way anymore. Um, as I said before, we often cringe when we think of indebtedness or obligation. It's a, they're words that we often don't like because it, it sounds like a, a contract, doesn't it? It sounds like something where you have this contract hanging over you and you have to live by the conditions of it. And what you're kind of longing for is the day when you've kind of fulfilled the contract and you can get out from under it, Right? But I think this obligation or this debt that Paul is talking about maybe would better be compared to um, the covenant that we know in marriage. 
So I've been married to my wife, and in a couple of weeks we will celebrate our 40th anniversary. So 40 years we've been married to each other. We, we grew up together, you know, and spent pretty much all our life together. Um, I, there are obligations that come with being the husband to my wife. There are things I'm expected to do. There are behaviors that are expected of me. There are responsibilities I have that are part of being her husband. And she would say the same as part of being my wife. But those are obligations that I entered into gladly, that I chose. Those are obligations that I live out because I love my wife and because my wife loves me. Those are obligations I want to carry. Those aren't obligations that are some burden that I'm stuck with. Those are who I want to be because my wife, years ago, chose to rescue me from my aloneness by choosing to marry me. And every single day, in some way, my wife still chooses to rescue me from my aloneness. And I think my job towards her is to do the same. We have an obligation. But that's a different thing than some burden that I carry, right? Because that's an obligation that grows out of a relationship of love. It grows out of one that we choose to be in, that we want to progress in. I think it's the kind of obligation here that Paul's talking about. We have entered into a relationship with someone who has blessed us in ways we can't even begin to understand, who loves us in ways that are beyond our ability to grasp. We have an obligation, an obligation of gratitude, an obligation to, to live into this wonderful thing that is now ours, this wonderful relationship. Not a burdensome obligation, not a horrible debt, the debt we get to celebrate, we get to live into it. Maybe a phrase that's easier for us to understand, though, is when he talks about us being children. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So when he says that you've been led by the Spirit here, I don't think he means some kind of momentary prompting or something. I think he's talking about that same thing. You've been led by the Spirit. You are now, you are now in the way of the Spirit because the Spirit's with you. He is with you all the time. He's guiding, directing, influencing you at all times. You are led by the Spirit now because you have come to Christ. And he says that and if you are led by the Spirit, if that is true of you, you are children of God. If you are children of God, you will be led by the Spirit. If you're led by the Spirit, you are children of God. Those two are always bound together. Um, which means, again, if, you're not, if your life does not in any way reflect being led by the Spirit, not again that that's perfect, but if there is no progressing in the life of the Spirit, we ought to ask hard questions about our relationship to God. Because if it is there, there will be signs of it. There will be fruit. There will be some kind of progress in it. Because we are children of God. Your basic orientation in some ways has changed. Even though there's still the old there, there's something new now. I love the story that's been told by one of our missionaries, David Mensah. Many of you have heard it before. David talks about when he grew up in northern Ghana and he talks about when he came to know Christ. He said he was talking to somebody in a village far from his home, talking to this man who was explaining Christ and telling him the gospel. And he said, I really didn't even fully understand who Christ was but I came to believe. He said, even in my kind of distorted belief, I did come to believe. I did put my faith in Christ. And he said, you know how I knew I did? 
because when I was walking home from that village that night, he said a stray dog walked across the path. And he said, in the past, what I would always do if I saw a stray dog is I would kick it or throw something at it or beat it. He said, that was my normal response to stray dogs. And he said, it struck me, I don't want to harm this dog. I really don't. Something has changed in me. And he said, I saw those changes again and again and again. Was he a man who suddenly stopped sinning? No. But his orientation had changed. Something was different. If the Spirit is in us, then there ought to be some signs that the Spirit is with us. Not because our behavior makes us a child of God. Because if we are a child of God, the Holy Spirit is with us. He is a part of us. You know, when I talk about being indebted to God, that's not a hard thing for me to think about. When I think about being a child of God and what that truly means, that is harder for me to own. It is harder for me to own that reality, that I am someone that God loves as a child, that God receives and gives access to and embraces the way a father should embrace and give access to their children, that he wants to protect me and care for me and see the best in me, the way a father should want to do that for his children. That is a harder thing for me to hold on to and to truly believe is true of me. As I've thought about it these last few days, I thought, do you ever really think of your relationship with God that way? I say the words all the time, but do you really own those words? You know what strikes me in this? Is God wants us to own the words. He doesn't just want us to hear them. He wants us to own them, right? Because listen to what he says. He says, and by him, by the Holy Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. That is, a, that is a phrase of intimacy for God. Some have said it's a phrase that might be compared to today saying, Daddy. And there's some controversy about whether that's true or not. But what everybody agrees, it's an intimate term. It's an intimate way of talking about God. It's the way that Jesus addressed God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. At one of those most difficult times in his life, he addressed the Father that way. Abba, Father. Uh, it's, it's a term that implies that we have unique access to the Father, that he's available to us in a way that only a father would be available to his children. He says, by the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father, and the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We aren't just God's children. God wants us to know, experience, believe we are God's children. Matter of fact, Paul uses this uh, illustration of adoption. He says that, the Spirit brought about your adoption to sonship. And I think adoption, he chose that as a picture because it uniquely is it's a picture that's rooted in grace. The children weren't adopted because they somehow earned it or deserved it or did something to earn being the children. I think he's speaking here of adoption in Greco-Roman culture, and he's saying, no, they, they chose you. For whatever reason, they just chose you. And they chose to give you the full rights of a biological child. Fully. Matter of in that culture, an adopted child could even have rights beyond the biological children because often they would adopt a son and the son, especially if it's the eldest son, got the bulk of the inheritance and was the one who was given the place of greatest honor. So sometimes the adopted child was even the one who was lifted up the most. He's saying, you are, you are adopted into sonship. You are chosen. Um, this is not about something you performed to earn or something that you deserved. It's something that God chose to give you. Now, I know for some, that image of father comes with some baggage, right? 
Whenever we talk about God the Father, that's, that doesn't stir the same image in everybody's mind. For some of you, the, the image of a father is one that is a negative in a lot of ways. And I, I think even the fact that sometimes that when we think about a father, if, if our fathers have been people who have failed us in some pretty difficult ways, who have not been available to us as a father should be, who have not protected, sometimes even have done horrible harm, even the fact that something in us reacts so strongly to that, something in us knows that is not what we need from a father, tells us we're made for something more, tells us that we are made to be in a relationship with a father who is like God our Father, who gives us at least a taste of that. Because that's, that's the relationship we long for. It's the relationship we're made for. God, our Father, is the God who protects us, who loves us, who cherishes us, who is available to us, who grants us access. The Spirit tells us we are in the kind of relationship where we are to say to Him, Abba, Father, and cry it out. Because that's who God wants us to be towards Him. He not only stops there and says that that's the relationship you have with the Father, He goes on and He says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So if you're children, it means you get to inherit things, right? There's things waiting for you someday that you're going to inherit. And he says, that's true of you. You are children. So there are some wonderful blessings or wonderful things awaiting you. But he doesn't just stop there, right, and say you're just heirs. So you're children, so you get to inherit some things. He goes beyond that and he says you're co-heirs with Christ. So in this culture, again, the, the oldest son about the bulk of the inheritance. God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ. You are co-heirs with Him. Brothers and sisters to the, to the Prince of the universe. That's, that's the relationship that we've been given and God has called us into. Co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. What is that inheritance? It's that glory that Christ will one day know. It's the blessings, it's the honor, it's the relationship with the Father, it's all those good things are part of His glory. And we are now co-heirs with Him in it. Now the bad news, he says, there's still some suffering. We'll still be in that for a time, right? Uh, my daughter-in-law is uh, going to give birth to my fourth grandson, uh, hopefully within the next week or so. Uh, she's really hoping in the next week or so, <laughs> I believe. But we were just this week talking, and um, she was talking with my wife some about giving birth and all that's involved in that. And as I was listening to them, I'm thinking, thank God I didn't have to go through that. <laughs> you know? I got to be a nice observer and supporter, but I didn't have to experience it. It just does not sound that pleasant to me. And I, re- I have watched my wife twice do it, and I've sure talked to a lot of other women just afterwards uh, who have gone through it. And there's a lot of it that does not sound that pleasant, right? Uh, men, it it's, just doesn't sound good. Uh, but you know what's funny is when I'm visiting women right after they've given birth to a child or even with my wife when our daughter and our son was placed in her arms, it is funny. I'm sure they didn't forget about that pain. But that pain is just somehow out of focus now. It, it's just not what they talk about anymore. In that moment, that pain kind of gets set aside. I know it doesn't disappear, but it sure gets set aside because the blessing of that child is really all that matters. I think that's what God's saying to us. There is suffering for a time. There is. Um, Because we are with Christ, we will, as Christ, know some suffering. 
We will walk in the shadow of the cross in some ways. Not as he did, but in some ways. But man, we get to hold on to that inheritance that will be ours. We know that day is coming. We get a taste of it now, but we know that day is coming where we will be co-heirs with him. We will know glory with him. Man, there's a day when that suffering will probably be hard to remember, right? Because the blessings will be so great. Who are we? We are debtors. I think, again, debtors, a debt, an obligation that grows out of gratitude. We are children. We are children of the Most High. Uh, We are children that have unique access, um, intimate access to our Father. We are heirs. We are people that have the promise of unbelievable blessings uh, in our future. And even some of it now. Uh, That's who you are. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for... Um, for the fact that you chose us. Father, for the fact that as undeserving as we are, as far from you as, uh, Father, we have moved, Father, you sought us out. You loved us so much that you sent your one and only Son that he would die for us and give his life for us, um, that we might know you. Father, I pray that we would live out that life, that we would not be so foolish as to return to slavery of sin, but we would uh, live the lives we're called to. Father, I pray that we would know every bit of the joy and blessing and glory that is ours because of you, and that everything we do and say would bring glory to you. In your blessed name, amen.